Well, hey everybody, it's Jean Nathan and it is Crosstown Conversations. And I have uh, somebody who I think is very important with me this morning. This, what am I talking about this morning? That's because I just had to have a nap because I was in such bad shape today. Um, and I just came too. But um, Celeste Key is um, heads up a program that uh, is, is all about trying to make sure that our kids get a better um, access to arts education. That may not sound like a big deal to everybody who's listening, but it is if you think about how important it is to educate our kids for the jobs of the future. And the jobs of the future do not include a whole lot of the jobs that we have right now, which are being automated out of existence. And so the question is, what will our kids be doing for a living in the years to come? And that's all about, believe it or not, the arts and the creative industries. So Celeste is director of the New Orleans Arts Education Alliance. She, uh, it's also called Arts Ed All. Yes. Mm-hmm. I like that um, acronym, so to speak. And uh, she's based actually right over here at the um, Rose Buildings on Bayou Road. Mm-hmm. So very convenient to folks in the, you know, the 7th, 8th, 9th wards uh, below Canal. And um, she's in the business of trying to figure out how to get more arts into the lives of more of our kids. And um, she's come up with some pretty uh, interesting ideas and funding sources to make that work. So why don't you give me, Celeste, uh, kind of the intro, so to speak, of of how this all works. I can maybe give a little bit of background on how our organization came about. All right. um, And talk a bit about what we're working on right now. Please. Um, So as Jean mentioned, uh, this program began uh, trying to solve the problem of how to bring more arts into the lives of children in New Orleans, um, particularly in K-12 public schools. Um, As people may know, we live in a school district that is right now 100% charter schools. Um, It's a decentralized school district, which means that schools have a lot of autonomy, a lot of um, ability to determine their own curriculum, their own instruction, what children are offered, um, and Thankfully, in New Orleans, we do have a lot of um, excellent arts partners. We've got cultural institutions and nonprofits and other organizations that provide the arts um, both in and after school. Um, And we also have many schools that are providing access to the arts for children. But what we don't have um, is a system-wide understanding of who is getting the arts in our system right now and who is who does not have that access among children. Where they are and what what is provided, what is not provided. Exactly. And, and I, you know, I, I, the, one of the reasons, and we'll go into more than one of the reasons that this is so important to me, is that I remember so much when I was a kid growing up in the Bronx mm-hmm. and um, in public schools and, and from modest circumstances, and um, we had art. Exactly. Every single exactly. term there was an art course. It was either music <clears throat> or visual arts, and I made art, and our teachers took us to the museums around the city, and it had a profound impact on me, for one. It might not have it on everybody. Not everybody is, is focused um, on art, but um, going to the Museum of Modern Art in New York and seeing something like Picasso's Guernica, this huge canvas filled with people at war, was um, just 
it just blew my mind and it changed me forever and uh, really helped make the person I am in terms of being somebody interested in and committed to the arts. So I, I just, I think it's important. Um, tell me what they're, give me a cup, a little bit of a sampling of the kind of sort of better programs that are out there and where they are just to sort of set the standard. Sure. Well, I mean, there are schools that collaborate with multiple partners and um, in the landscape of New Orleans right now. Um, we work with a lot of our arts partners. Uh, we have, um, as you are, are part of now, we've pulled together an arts education roundtable of people who provide programming. I'm going to call out a few programs, but this is not at all to um, detract from any other programs. It's just my, my memory right now. That wasn't fair of me, exactly, <laughs> but I just wanted to give people a sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So the, we have programs... Um, I'm thinking of uh, programs like KidSmart, who we work with closely, who provide um, teaching artists and provide um, uh, arts programming across the arts. Um, we and also, they're after school primarily, right? They do in-school and after-school programming. Um, we have wonderful music education programs as well. Many music education programs make music NOLA, um, our artist core NOLA. We have a Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, places um, musicians in schools as well. Um, and so we have quite a few providers across uh, the visual and performing arts that do a lot of good work in schools. But like I said, what's been missing up to this point, um, we know that there are a lot of programs in sc schools that are still not offering arts programming um, from what we can see. And what we're really trying to do right now is get a clear understanding of the landscape, um, find which schools, which students are really needing programs, um, and make sure that we're directing resources toward that. And I presume that uh, part of uh, the output from your efforts will be some kind of a directory or map that will be available, I guess, online, where yes. people can actually go and look and see if they're interested in a school in their area. Do they have arts programming? They'll be able to go to your directory and see that. Exactly. Yeah, we have a pretty exciting uh, partnership that is coming into fruition this year. We've been talking for a few years with different partners really trying to figure out how to get that unified landscape. Um, so if you're, let's say, a school administrator and you want to find out what are the music programs um, that you can connect students with or uh, what, which uh, cultural institutions, which museums offer free field trips for students, for public school students, um, or offer educational resources, um, that you can find all of those in one place. Or even if you're a parent looking for after-school programming for your child um, in the arts, you know where to find that. Um, and so we have a, a partnership that's coming about now that's a, a mix of local and national partnerships. Um, we're working with the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts uh, in Thank Washington. Thank goodness for the Kennedy Center. They do so much for all of us. Yes. And I didn't get into that when I was talking about our organization, but they're one of our earliest partners. They were part of this planning process from the very beginning, mm -hmm. um, the citywide planning process that helped to create this organization. Um, so we're working with them. We're also working with an organization called Ingenuity. Um, they're basically Chicago's version of us. They're much bigger than us because Chicago has over 600 schools. Um, and we have, How many you know, schools do we have? We have usually between uh, 79 and 86 schools in mm -hmm. any given year. You know, there's usually schools opening and closing. But mm -hmm. we've got in the 70s or 80s most years. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, much, it's, it's a much bigger program. But they have this really cool resource called the Artlook Map. Um, and I guess I'll plug it. If you go online and look at artlookmap.com, you can find it. Um, 
and go in for any year, and it will show you a list of all the arts programming in schools across mm-hmm. Chicago, mm-hmm. Um, all arts programming in, in school and after school community programs, um, and we'll have that all in one place. And it will tell you everything from which grade levels um, the, the school offers arts in, which, which arts they offer, all of that. Um, and we really want this to be a resource for the community. Um, so as we're developing it, we are really looking for feedback from schools, from parents, um, from community partners, from other, from organizations, from people who might be using this map to tell us what they would like to see. Um, and and I, I think um, maybe to answer a question that might be on the minds of some listeners, there are two kinds of art programs. There's kind of the art history variety mm-hmm. where you learn about art that has been made by others mm-hmm. and about the full spectrum of art because that was another thing I remember learning you know, studying about jazz um, in school, and it, it, it brought me, uh, in, in part, sort of aimed me at New Orleans, mm-hmm. you might say. And um, and then secondly, actual art making. Um, and then there's a third version that I, I really hope we can develop better, and that is um, helping students to understand how they can build careers yes. in the arts. Because one of the things that is so amazing about New Orleans is that our kids are particularly creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody someday will do some kind of very sophisticated study that will understand why, but we know in part it's because I, I have been saying lately, I come up with the phrase that the past is not past in New Orleans. It's part of us, our everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so we carry with us our cultural legacy of the you know 300 plus years of of this area not to mention what preceded us for thousands of years that's a part of it too so it um that makes this place very unique and our kids very unique mm-hmm. that's a asset exactly. that we have not sufficiently developed at all and with the changes in the economy it's more important than ever that um, we pay attention to the creative work and the creative industries and the creative careers and make sure that our kids can um, look to the possibilities of, of working in, in creative fields so that they'll have jobs because, you know, those those manufacturing jobs can go offshore. The, a lot of the retail jobs are being automated. Um, you can't entirely ever automate or move out of a place the arts. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think that the arts are vital to children's education, both locally and nationally and in general. Um, we know that the arts are such a deep part of the cultural economy in New Orleans, and that especially before Katrina, so many of our artists and musicians here were coming through the schools um, and could name the art or music teacher that had an impact on them and caused them to go into mm-hmm. that career, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, in many cases made them world famous and made them impact the world with their art. So we know that locally here, arts education in schools is just so important um, in making sure that we have those those culture bearers and those cultural creators going forward in the future. Um, even if children don't go into a creative career, the skills that they learn from having the arts in their education will follow them throughout their lives. And we know, um, based on national research, that it can help them with business. It can help them with all sorts of different skills that they need um, to be competitive in the 21st century workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything from spatial skills, design skills, problem-solving skills, socio-emotional skills, those soft skills we talk about, the arts help to build those as well. I'm thinking a few years back, 
IBM did a study of um, Fortune 500 CEOs, and they asked what qualities they wanted um, the 21st century worker to have. And creativity was the number one quality that these CEOs said they were looking for in their hires in the future. I want you to send me the reference on that. I, I need that for my, you, yeah. for my papers when I'm <laughs> trying to get money for the various um, creative industries programs that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, the other thing that's so interesting about making art, even, again, if you're never going to be a great artist, but you just have that experience of making it, there's a focusing of the mind. Yes. And the person in general in the process of making art that's like nothing else except maybe competitive sports mm-hmm. that just engages you at a level that it just brings about a concentration of your mind and of, of every part of you mm-hmm. that is satisfying. Yes, exactly. And I, we look kind of, we look at the arts as a lens, but um, I'm really learning with my work that more and more it's about enrichment programming. It's about making sure that students are not just doing working toward the test throughout their day, um, that they're getting a chance to be creative, to express themselves. Um, Oftentimes their arts programs may be the only time during the day where they get to completely create and express themselves, and that's part of how they develop a sense of self. Um, Yeah, and from what I understand, there are those people, and I'm not an educator myself, and I don't spend that much time with educators, but to the extent that I do, um, I hear this a lot, that the focus on the testing is not the optimum way to um, help children really develop their their mission in life, their th- thinking ability, their their ability to to do and make. Mm-hmm. And it is the arts that that makes that happen. Exactly. Well, well, the high stakes testing that we put children through helps. It, it tells us about a certain skill set that they have. It tells us that they can take a test, that they can present information in a particular way. It doesn't teach all of those other skills. It doesn't teach um, the skills that you and I are talking about now, that creativity, that thinking for yourself, um, having a problem in front of you that you solve through creative strategies, through creative thinking skills. Those are built through the arts. Um, and that's another thing that I think a lot of people sort of discount. I don't. I think they think that creativity is only about making art. But as you said, it really the process of science mm-hmm. and of invention and engineering. I mean, all of the uh, of the trades that seem uh, more removed from the arts involve the creative process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a problem solving. It's, it's putting two and two together. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In a different way. Exactly, yeah. And um, not to get too far down the policy hole, because I know that's not everyone's interest, but we are moving into a time in Louisiana where I think um, is will be more friendly to the arts and schools than it has been in the past. Tell me why. Sure. Um, so the federal policy that we were operating under was No Child Left Behind. Um, and that was very much focused on tested subjects, just teaching to the test. Um, I think that what we saw across the country was that programs like arts, PE, foreign languages, health, all of those things were starting to disappear from schools because schools were really having to teach to the test in order to get their school performance scores. Um, the new policy that's coming into place that's starting to roll into place this year is called the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, and in Louisiana, ESSA for short, and in Louisiana... What's it for short? Um, ESSA, E-S-S-A. Um, and I'm happy if any 
callers are interested in going deeper into that, they're welcome to contact me. We can talk more. Um, but this is going to impact education in Louisiana. Is that a federal policy or state? It's a federal policy. And it came about during the Trump administration? No. no it came to it's Obama. It's been coming for a while. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah. It's been coming for years, and it's just rolled out this year. Um, mm-hmm. And this uh, policy will include the arts. It will include foreign language, PE, all of that. Schools can actually include that programming in their school performance scores for the first time ever. Um, and we helped to write that policy for the Louisiana Department oh, of Education. That's so, great. so we that's are so happy to help schools. Or when, when will it actually be implemented? When does it? It's starting to roll out in the 2019-20 school year, so they're piloting it. So schools will be able to report their arts programming now this year, um, and that will become more Here and more in New Orleans? In, yep, across Louisiana. Any school or just certain schools when you say Any piloting? public school. Any public school can, can do it. Can include What's the their arts? incentive to do it? Is there an incentive that will push them in that direction? Well, um, five, up to 5% of their school performance scores can be based on their enrichment programming. Okay. So oh, if you really think about important. it, let's say you know, you're, a, you're a C school and you're really invested in the arts and in, in building enrichment programming, that could push you up to a B. Like that could actually push you up one whole letter grade. So uh, are you hearing the people that you're talking with in the schools say that they know about this and they want to do it? Um, I think that schools are somewhat aware. Um, but part of the reason I'm talking to you is also to help spread that awareness that this policy is, is, is changing and my organization, um, we're committed to helping schools understand um, how to use that policy and how to get those five points because we think that schools should have that incentive to provide the arts again. Absolutely. You know? Celeste, please um, send me something that I can – I have a, a sort of advertising column in my newsletters that I put out, and I actually – have a lot of people who read the newsletter, whether they listen to the show or not. Yeah. And um, I would be very happy to have something in here that would say, um, for your school, you can please do this, go there. Sure. You know, give people a real simple way to uh, move on that and to bring it into their school because I would I would love to see that just plain explode. Yeah, absolutely. And if any schools, you know, staff or administrators are listening in on this, you're welcome to call or email me as well if you have questions about it. Uh, to where? Um, sure. <laughs> uh, my email address is celeste at artsedall.org. So C-E-L-E-S-T-E at A-R-T-S-E-D-A-L-L.org. Um, and uh, my phone number is 504-421-9612. And we'll do that again just before the end of our sure. interview. Um, yeah, so uh, how, where is the governor standing on this? I'm, I'm thinking that maybe his wife, who's a school teacher, and from what I understand, she has some interest in the arts. Maybe did she help this along in, yes, in some way? Yes, absolutely. She's been a huge uh, champion of the arts. Um, and we've actually been working with her on an initiative called Teach MAM, um, M-A-M, Music, Arts, and Movement. Um, because she used to be a music teacher herself, she is very much invested um, in supporting arts and music education uh, in the future. So that program actually we're piloting for her right now. We're working um, in four different parishes. We are surveying schools in Orleans, um, Lafayette, Tangipahoa, and Nagadosh parishes. So we were looking at a mix of urban and rural parishes to see what kind of arts they have, what kind of programming they need, um, and what she can be doing to support the arts. 
So uh, let me be a little um, uh, promotional myself for a moment. Uh, so the program that um, my organization, the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, is so committed to is something called a Creative Futures. Yes. And um, our curriculum basically helps students understand the full range of job and career opportunities in the arts mm -hmm. so that they can see and their parents can see because a lot of parents when a child is interested in the arts is saying oh honey you can't be doing that because mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to make a living from that and that's of course not true if, if, if a child really has some creative talent and then they pursue it they can do very well mm -hmm. and they just have to handle the business side along with the um, art side mm -hmm. and so our program really tries to make it clear not only what the career opportunities are, but also the educational. So how do they get there? And we have been building a directory, a national directory, of programs in post-secondary education that um, students can go to in order to build their skills, as well as training programs. And we also have a class in how to run a creative business so kind of like a, a little business management program for creatives. So I, maybe I could, you'll take me hand in hand with you to go visit um, Mrs. Edwards so yes. I can tell her about this because I've been wanting to do that. And yeah. I, I was kind of shy about how to get to her. And she, yeah, her. She, she, she wants to know kind of about what programming is happening right now and what we can do to support it. So, yeah, let's have that conversation. I tried to get that into the Jumpstart program, yeah. and I couldn't quite figure it out because creative industries is so broad. Mm -hmm. It's not just fashion or music or it's, it's, it's the whole spectrum, and it didn't quite fit into their format. So I still have to figure out, you know, how to uh, – Work it in. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's what I'm coming to your meetings for. Yes, excellent. <laughs> Not that I don't more. buy in and want to support <laughs> everything else you're doing, but that's, uh, that's a big part of what I, I'm interested in seeing happen. Um, where do you see all this going? What, how, how, tell me about the future. Well, I'm hoping um, that in the next couple of years we'll get our – once our map's up and running, we'll have a one-stop shop um, where we can find all of the programming. I'm really hoping that um, once we can see where all the programming is, we can see also where programming is not. So what programs are still missing, what students are still not being served, what schools are still not being served. And that allows us to um, help to raise funding and direct resources toward those programs, toward building those programs. Um, ideally, what I would love to see is a school system where every student is getting arts education throughout their school day. So they have access to music, they have access to visual arts, they have access to, they have knowledge of the creative economy, of creative jobs, all of that. What, what schools right now, um, again, without saying anything about who mm -hmm. doesn't have, but wh which are the ones that really are the good models for arts education in their programs? Um, one program that comes to mind, well, you know, it's really hard for me. I, I, it's hard for me to talk about this because I don't want anyone to think that I'm, you I know, understand, if I bring up that example. People understand that. I'm just yeah. looking for an example. I'm thinking, for example, Bricolage mm -hmm. um, is, a, is a program that has done a really good job of working creative arts throughout their um, their curriculum. Um, so like the Bricolage right here on Esplanade? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's and they, good to know. They've, they've done a lot of work with design thinking. Um, where they're kind of introducing design principles throughout the day really? to students. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, that's one that comes to mind. But there are actually a lot of schools that are offering arts programming. Um, and oftentimes they're doing it without a lot of resources. Um, the, 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 the teachers, um, music teachers or visual arts teachers, are going into their own um, 
you know, salaries to provide Paychecks. instruments yep. and programs for mm -hmm. the kids. Yeah. And so one of the things we're trying to do um, is build up that landscape so that teachers have access to more resources as well. Um, and they're not just struggling to do things on their own. Because even the schools that aren't offering great arts programming, it's not necessarily because they don't want to. It's often because they don't have access to the resources. You know, um, there was a program in New York. I don't think we have a comparable program here, but you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and I, I forget the exact name of it. But it was kind of a, a centralized um, place where art supplies were made available free to people who were looking for them. So they would just, they would collect the, um, the supplies from various donors. And, um, so you, a teacher could go in there and, and get the supplies that she or he needs. That's a and great idea. It's, it's, it's very important in New York. It's a big deal. And actually artists even use it and arts programs, organizations. Um, that are looking for materials for, let's say, some kind of installation and so on, because it can c include everything, not just um, uh, literally paints and, and um, musical instruments, but um, construction materials. Yes. It, when someone is actually building a set for a, a theater program and so forth. I wish I could remember the name of that program. It's still very much uh, alive. It's yeah, if you if you remember the name, let me know, because we're always looking for good examples. I, I think I, I literally, you know, my instinct would be to Google something like free our supplies in New York. You know? <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was that kind of a, it was pretty well known and, and something that I think would really, <clears throat> as you say, make a lot of sense here where we don't have the resources yeah, yet. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's also part of why I'm hoping once we launch the Art Look Map in New Orleans, we get to actually see where those big need areas are and we can start creating programming to address them. And also, I want to just ask you, um, we're coming up on our, our time, but, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people focus here on the sort of low-hanging fruit of, say, music and food. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and they don't pay enough attention to things like the visual arts yes. or, uh, or the design arts, architecture. We have so much infrastructure Engineering, for that matter, is a creative industry. Mm -hmm. And and we're doing so much of that here because we have so much infrastructure that we have to deal with because of our, you know, our water and, and flooding and, and sea level issues that we have to address, which, by the way, um, that's another area where creativity is going to be really profound because, you know, what are we going to do as the water rises in the Mississippi River? Exactly. And uh, we can't just keep opening the spillway and, and drown out. My husband was telling me at a regional planning meeting the other day, um, Guy McGinnis from St. Bernard was talking about how when you open the spillways, you know, you get that fresh water downstream, it's killing our shrimp and our mm -hmm. oysters. Well, so we can't just keep doing that. We have to come up with other ideas. Yes. And when they came up with the idea of the spillways and the levees, then that tells you that we can come up with new solutions. So um, kids who are interested in, in building and constructing and engineering, um, they benefit from these arts programs as well. So uh, do you have any sense at all? Is there any kind of statistics on um, those uh, young people who are more interested in, in, in those kind of science-based arts? Um, there is a whole area of uh, research called STEAM. Um, so it's like, yeah, that whole area. So it's so STEM, science, which is science, 
science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. Right. Um, and that's adding like, the arts. Yeah, and that's well, it's not even adding the arts. It's acknowledging that creative thinking um, runs through all of these different. But we did have to get it added. Yeah. Because at first it was just plain STEM. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So STEM to STEAM initiatives. Um, my husband's an engineer, and he uses design. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. he uses design constantly. Um, spatial skills that he's learned from arts practice that he applies to his job constantly. So it's oh, something that people use throughout their day. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of a shame that we have to include it when we already know that these skills are inherent, are already there. Um, and we know that these creative skills build long-term um, positive outcomes for children. We know that they particularly um, build long-term po- positive outcomes for children from lower income backgrounds as well, um, and children who have not been reached through other subjects. So, I um, so much appreciate what you're doing, and I was really happy to have you come in today. And I want you to stay in touch. Yes. And as things are developing, let's, let's keep reminding people about this and, and what you're doing because it's very important. Absolutely. It really is. Yeah. It's very important for um, our kids' opportunities, for the growth of our economy, for actually the very survival of our city. Exactly. So let's key and say your program again because uh, – New Orleans Arts Education Alliance. We can New find Orleans us. Arts Education Alliance. Yep. If, they, if they just do that, they can find you online, yes, right? Yes, they can find us at artsedall.org. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank Keep you at for it. Me. Stay in touch. Yep. Take Thank care. You. Okay. Well, now we're going to go down memory lane a little bit because I've got an old friend um, lined up to talk with me who I went to Woodstock with. Yes, I went to Woodstock. I wasn't not going to go to Woodstock. If you lived in the Northeast and Woodstock was about to happen, you just kept saying to yourself, I, I, I got to go. You got to go. You just got. It's like if Jazz Fest is on, um, sooner or later at some point you just got to go. So um, this gentleman, Lou Felstein, are you there, Lou? I am indeed. Yay! We're connected. You got, you have your computer skills after all, I'm sure. <laughs> he was trying to say he doesn't have enough computer skills. I'm sorry I didn't get the word to you about how to get people on to listen until late, but did, were you, did you get my last email about how people can listen live? Yes, indeed. Excellent. Just uh, for the sake of the audience, let me just say, just so you you know that you can listen to this and all programs on WBOK online. You just have to go to WBOK, 1230 a.m., go to the site, and there's a little, you know, prompt that says listen live. You hit listen live, and you can be listening live. So I'm glad you got your friends uh, to to uh, tune in. So, Lou, what inspired Lou, – Lou's the guy. I was working with him in the mayor's office, uh, well, actually in the campaign for the re-election of John Lindsay, who was mayor of New York. And um, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the word about Woodstock filtered out, and, and Lou is the one who's, who kind of gathered up a bunch of us from the campaign and said, hey, let's go to Woodstock, right? And we didn't know any better. <laughs> well, I, it was a great thing that you did that. And and although I'm I'm sorry that when we were talking with each other, um uh we were both having a problem remembering much about it <laughs> because it was maybe a little too much fun, but um it it was it, the the thing that um we all talk about. Lou, you don't have your radio on, do you? 
Or the TV. No. Okay, good. I just want to make sure because I'm hearing a little have, bit of interference. There's, there's some little bit of interference there that I'm not sure where it's coming from. But um, uh, we'll, we'll ignore it. So uh, it, 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 it was such a – yeah, that, what is that happening? Um, I'm trying to – I'm talking to my engineer. Oh, you're on speaker. No, 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 no. Okay, so now your voice sounds a little bit filtered, but – I think we just lost that interference. Cool. So what, okay. what first, insp- mm-hmm. how, how did you find out about it and what inspired you to get us all together to go? Oh my God. Those are two questions that sound like there should be a, a, a reasonable or a logical answer <laughs> for which there was none. I don't remember at all how I found out about it. And I, and I do know that when we first started talking about it, you know, we had no idea what we we're getting into and it didn't seem like quite as big a deal as it turned out to be. Um, and no, nonetheless, I, it was a little bit of a hike to upstate New York from the city, oh yeah, right? Oh, yeah. And do you remember the driving up? We got stopped by, there was places where the police would stop all the cars for a while. Yes, <laughs> I do remember that, yeah. I remember that because I was remember, I was driving one of the cars, and I, for some stupid reason, I forgot to bring my driver's license. Uh-oh. And I, rem- <laughs> yeah, I didn't exactly. know that. Auspicious beginning. And I remember very that I we had to get out of the car. That was our way to prepare. And as we got out, I got one of one of the group in the car to to switch with me. I had a hat on my head. I said, "Put this on your hat. You're now the driver when the cop comes along." Oh. And then we, that was auspicious, but a proper beginning. So, so this is actually one of the things that I wrote in my newsletter, and I, and I'm, I know you probably haven't seen it yet, but you will. Um, and, and that is that uh, we we were all kind of organizers in one way or another. Um, and to one degree or another. And so some of our organizational skills really had to come to play in, in maneuvering and in, in, uh, being able to get around and, for example, find a different, a decent place to put, uh, what ultimately would become muddy and rain-soaked blankets, uh, close enough to the stage to really uh, have a good view. Because I do remember, and, and, you know, we were talking about how little we could actually remember, but one of the things I do remember is that we were not that far back from the stage. When you look at the crowd shots now, and you just look at thousands of people and all the way out to the edge of the horizon of the photographs, we weren't back there. We were kind of, I'm not going to say but, we were right up by the stage, but we were close enough to really be able to see people's faces. Oh, I, I think we were within uh, less than 100 yards from the stage. Wow, that and, close. But, but you hit, but and you're, you also hit on, on how we got there. One of the one of the people in our group was a guy from the Ford Foundation, and he agreed to take uh, the day off the day before uh-huh. and drive up and case the area and see if he could find a place for us to to camp. And, uh, and and he had, he did he sort of claim it um, uh, Oklahoma style and put a flag up and say this is our well, spot. We didn't know what it was, but he was willing to actually go up in case the place. And he went up and he found a campground that is maybe two or three miles away, uh, but it had a separate entrance into the the Woodstock site. <gasps> is we drove that up what to that it was? Place, and then we drove across to some funky little road, dirt little road. And we ended up coming up behind the stage, and we got out of the uh, out of the cars, and we had to make our way to the front of the stage, and we got to be that close because we didn't we didn't have to march through or fight our way down through all those people spent across the hillside because we blundered into this place that got us there from behind the stage, 
And so we ended up uh, being no more than, as I said, 80 to 100 yards, if that, away. You yeah. see, I remember that we were close, but I, I didn't know about that little av- navigational um, strategy that we had going for us. I, I, didn't, I didn't know about that. But, <laughs> yeah, that was so – you see, that's what I'm saying. We were all um, political – Organizers, essentially. Right. And uh, right. I don't know about your Ford friend, but, um, uh, and what, was it a he or a she? A he. Uh, I don't know about what his skills, um, uh, were in particular, but he, he certainly, uh, made a difference for us because that was something to have that humongous crowd, but to be close enough to see the faces of the musicians and wow. What we were talking about the music and and what we remembered and what we liked and you know of course I've been reading some of the articles in the in the papers about who liked what and my favorites um, were definitely Sly and the Family Stone of what was it Sly and the Family Stone was that it I think that's it yeah I think you yeah. got it right and um, uh, Joan Baez was somebody of course we were all familiar with at the time and. She was terrific, and um, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was a revelation to me because that's not really my kind of music. I'm sort of more of an R&B kind of girl, but um, I was blown away by his, um, of course, his virtuosity. And to be close enough again to really experience that firsthand was, you know, and not on some screen somewhere halfway back. And recently, by the way, I went to the Stones concert at the Superdome here in New Orleans, and I lucked into a really great spot, but I spent at least half of the concert watching the screens in order to really see what Mick Jagger looked like in his face instead of just his, um, you know, prancing on the stage. So it was pretty special experience. But, um, you know, again, in the articles, they talk a lot about the spirit of it, the peacefulness, the um, camaraderie, the just kind of a hopefulness at a time when we were going through some difficult political um, issues, um, maybe not as scary as what we're going through now, but um, pretty dramatic. You know, the anti-war protests were, were a very major factor in our lives at that time. How about you? Absolutely, absolutely. But it, it, I, don't, I don't remember feeling a single moment there <laughs> where it felt threatening or uh, at being at risk. I mean, you, you may be at risk because you, you were up to your... Uh, shins and mud sometimes, and the place smells a lot, but, you know, there was just nothing, nothing, as I remember, a moment. It was all benign and, and remarkably, yeah, loving. A strange word to use for any kind of gathering these days. I think it had um, an effect also that went beyond the, the the moment or the days of the experience. Don't you think, I mean, I, I, I think we took it back with us, um, as we went home, uh, to have that feeling that um, I'm not going to say that everything was going to be all right, so to speak, but it, that um, we could still come together and and enjoy uh, the company of, of a lot of other people around us, and it not be um, the kind of uh, very uh, uh, I, I, very charged, very edgy confrontations that we're going through now. And to some extent, we were at the time as well. Absolutely. If you remember, in that, the New York Times print today, uh, 10 or 12 page, you know, double section, a big special edition on Woodstock. 
and I was stunned. The centerfold in that was this great uh, photograph, uh, and the caption to it was uh, basically um, the, the photographer saying he felt the story was away from the stage, and then he saw them meeting all these crowds just benignly there, and this one particular couple holding each other, uh, wrapped yeah. in, uh, in quilts. Right. There was there was a lot of being wrapped in quilts up there. I do I remember well, that. Lots of except quilts, for the, except for there was also the crowds that didn't wear. They weren't wrapped in squat. They, right, they were right out there. Yeah, wearing nothing at all. Um, you know, uh, in reading and catching up on on what you've been doing since um, I knew you uh, back then, and I certainly only knew you in that context because I kind of lost track of you over the years. So when I um, had to chase you down and, and see what you'd been up to and discovered that you'd been working for, you know, a community um, uh, foundation for many years. Um, right. Uh, and, and when I think of that kind of an organization, uh, a, a community foundation that I'm familiar with, generally speaking, uh, is, it, it does good things, but it does it through, um, channeling the funding of smaller organizations that want somebody else to handle their money. That's kind of a classic model. But you, you said something that really stuck with me. You said that, um, you, took your organization into a political direction. And I, I'm not familiar with that kind of um, track, and I'm curious about it. I want to hear more about it because I'm going to have somebody join our conversation in just a few minutes who's doing something similar here in Louisiana where um, our parties are, as in other places, kind of at each other's throats and we have gone from being a blue state when I first got here in the 70s to now being <clears throat> pretty much a solid red state. And, um, wow. Oh, yeah. And, and you know what the turning point really was? It was the right to work law. That was a turning point. And I couldn't really explain why, except maybe it, it, it really diminished the role of, of unions in part. And unions have tended to be, uh, used to be at any rate, uh, democratic, uh, party oriented. And, um, it, it, it's, it's definitely not the same place and, uh, it's concerning. So I just want to understand how you took it in that direction and what that meant. How did you do that? What did you do? Well, and it's worth thinking about the state that I'm in. I ended up after work in Mississippi and then work for Lindsay in New York and so forth, uh, for eight years and then hosting a, an evening TV news program in New York for a couple of years. And then came up to New Hampshire, which was, in those days, it was as red as, uh, turns out, New Orleans, uh, New Orleans and, and, and maybe Louisiana. Yeah, Cohen. not New Orleans, but Louisiana, yeah. Okay, New Orleans well, well, is Louisiana still blue. Is yeah. But this was, that was a red state, and now the state is probably just edging on being much more blue. And it's changed considerably, uh, a long way from the, from the, the absolute automatic, uh, Republican votes are the two much more democratic in some ways. So, so how did that uh, happen? How did that work? And what was the role of your organization in that? Oh, I think it works. I don't think the organization gets uh, it. Just it was tried. It was going along with it rather than making it happen. I think part of what happened was that the population changed for for two decades or so. The state was one of the uh, six or eight fastest growing states in the country for twenty years, and the people coming in were people with. Uh, some means, some money, and uh, and 
also just generally more liberal, the younger people. And they, they moved the state, and at the same time, the foundation's role changed from what it had been before, where it was just making many, many small grants, as you said, responding to the people who gave us the money to, to give it away. Uh, but trying to instead say, we're not getting much done this way, and we moved into a more political role, limited by what the law allows a, a tax-exempt charitable organization to do. But still, there was a lot more room to do it. And many, many, uh, much of philanthropy in, now in, in the, across the country uh, has a, a, an edgier, uh, greater willingness to try and uh, move, move events politically, in part out of recognition that, that just the money that's given away may get you access to someone, but it may not move them very far. And so the foundation, but the foundations, because they're giving money away, they get people's attention. And they are, there are ways in which they can be quite effective and quite political. You see it, some of the, some of the national foundations, uh, when they're covered by magazines and newspapers, are clear that they are much more of a force than they used to be. It's still, give, give me some well, examples. still marginal in terms of how the country moves. Right, but, but uh, I'm really interested in this because, uh, you know, I, there have been articles in our uh, paper over the past uh, few weeks. There, it was an, uh, there was a very challenging story that basically said that the Democratic Party in Louisiana is in decline, literally. And um, there are those of us who have complained that we just don't understand uh, what the Democratic Party in the state is doing. Um, and then there was a, a, a sort of um, uh, a corrective effort on the part of the party to say, hey, look at all the great things we've been achieving, but in truth – um, we're nowhere near, uh, um, you know, purpling the state up a little bit. So I, I, I just want to know more about exactly, um, and, and being a nonprofit, running a nonprofit myself, I have issues with what I can and can't do. So uh, give me a couple um, more concrete examples of, uh, let's say, let's call it political action that fell on the right side of the law in terms of what a nonprofit can do, but that made a difference. So, you know, sort of anecdotal. Yeah. Um, first of all, they, they can lobby. And so foundation representatives are often, are much more often now than they used to be, uh, part of the, the process. They're on, they're, on the, they're on the floor of the state legislature here in the state uh, talking to organizations, talking to people. They, they testify regularly, uh, but they also work work the work the floor and work the reps and lobby them in, in a very in a perfectly legal way, talking about whatever the whatever issue they happen to be raising at the time, uh, and they also use some of their money to directly fund uh, organizations that are similarly uh, active, as it were. And this is true, by the way. Not just this is not just a blue activity; it's it's a red activity as well. Sure, there are of course, yeah. uh, foundations that are that are um, every bit um, as, as Republican or conservative or whatever the word would be uh, that are also active lobbyists. Um, and it's still it's still well within the law. Although I remember when we first started doing it, lots of people, including my own board of directors, was very nervous about it. Wanted to know if we could do it. We had to 
do a lot of work to try and persuade people to be comfortable with this. I'm going to ask you in, in just another minute or two about, again, an example of something that you were able to achieve through that lobbying. But I want you to meet somebody um, online uh, on this phone um, who is doing what you're talking about here in, in Louisiana. Um, uh, Broderick Baggard, are you on the line? Hold on. I'm going to get him on. Broderick? Good. Yes, I'm, I'm here. Thank you for Hi, Broderick. Me. I want you to meet Lou Feldstein. Who is hey, a, a part of my past? <laughs> we worked together uh, for uh, John Lindsay in New York, and uh, uh, as you may have heard, if you were listening to the show, went to Woodstock together um, uh, with the uh, engine of uh, Lou Felstein making it work, especially with help from a guy from the Ford Foundation. I just learned to, uh, this evening because uh, if I knew it before, I forgot it. Um, but um, Lou Broderick has an organization here called Together Louisiana. And um, it has branches in, in uh, various parts of the state. And he came to my attention, uh, actually had spent uh, quite a long time interviewing his father, who was a city councilman uh, back in the day. But um, now Broderick has uh, gone this route of working with an, a nonprofit organization. Um, and they were finally able to, to put up um, a, a, a stop sign against – uh, further tax incentives for oil companies uh, taking money that could have been used for the schools in Baton Rouge and made sure that that money actually went into the schools. Broderick, would you explain that process to, to Lou and, and then maybe give me a more current example of something you're working on so we can kind of compare notes here a little bit? Sure, yeah, and I have enjoyed the conversation, and I think this could be an example of what um, nonprofits can do um, uh, that's in the political realm, but not partisan. Um, uh, Louisiana, for 83 years, has been the only state in the country that has allowed a statewide board to control tax revenue that is local property tax revenue. So there's a board called the Board of Commerce and Industry, created in 1936, and it can exempt large petrochemical and other manufacturing companies from paying the taxes that fund drainage in Orleans Parish, schools in St. Bernard Parish, local um, uh, property taxes without those local entities having any say in the matter. Um, and they got really good at giving away money. They, they actually, uh, that program, the industrial tax exemption program, became the largest corporate subsidy program in the country it's giving almost $2 billion away each year. And in 2016, um, our network of organizations together in Louisiana pushed for reform, uh, and Governor John Bell Edwards did an executive order that said he was not going to sign off on any more of these exemptions unless local entities, uh, they, they get a say. Um, and uh, in, in many places, especially the cities, local entities have now started safeguarding their money and not giving away these exemptions hand over foot. Um, um, so it was one instance of a change that, that uh, kind of ordinary people working through their nonprofit organizations were able to achieve. And, I mean, in the teeth of the petrochemical industry and ExxonMobil and kind of the captains of the universe, that, that there was enough power at the local level to uh, to kind of stand them down and say, no, there got to be some limits on, on, on what we do, and the limits here are going to be our local school kids and other and other local services. So in Baton Rouge, for example, I, I, if I remember correctly, the figure was something like over 
thirty, maybe forty million dollars. Am I right? That uh, that was for one company. It was actually about seventy million total. But Exxon Mobil, which has a big refinery and petrochemical, four petrochemical facilities there, was getting forty million dollars per year in local public subsidies. Um, and so, uh, so they they, so they were asking so for an exemption, not to bring anything in or open anything new, but on a project that they had completed two years ago for a school district that had a deficit and was about to start layoffs, uh, and uh, the school teachers and, and churches and others said kind of enough is enough, and they and they said no for the first time in 83 years. And, uh, you know, uh, it was a, a, a political uproar ensued, but everybody has lived to tell the tale, and it really has set a new standard there. Uh, that has happened here as well. The exemptions aren't quite as big in, in Orleans Parish, but Orleans Parish had set some very appropriate and 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 uh standards uh, so it's it's a small step in light of you know uh it's probably you know one of 10 boondoggles that louisiana gives to uh <laughs> to, to the same industry but uh but but a, but a significant one in terms of showing that um that, that co- doing the kind of work can you, did, you can really stand up to the to the big guys every once in a while and 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 and, and stand them down well, I think you're being very modest about it because it, it's, it's a humongous game changer. It really is a paradigm shift. And um, I, I'm just uh, – when I first read about it, I just cheered. And I'm so happy to see that this is happening. What What are you guys um, up to now? What is, um, what is the, a, a current <laughs> initiative that you've got going? Um, well, I, so I'm spending most of my time in New Orleans now and, and building – what will be together in New Orleans. Um, and that's mostly in its um, formation phase. Um, a part of the philosophy of what I think builds strong organizations is, is, is to take your time building it because I mean, basically Lou, what, what our model is, is uh, that uh, our organizations are made up of other organizations. So um, the private sector figured this out a long time ago. Businesses, they have different interests. They compete with each other, but they all know that if they pool their resources and work together under chambers of commerce, then then they do a better job of protecting the interests of business. And anywhere you go, uh, in any you know hamlet or or, or metropolis, you're going to find the chamber of commerce. Um, we try to play that role for the civic sector. Um, so, religious congregations, nonprofits, unions, civic organizations. Uh, pay dues, become part of this organization, and it becomes a way that they can act out the part of their mission that calls them to act on change, but to have enough power and standing by virtue of the fact that they're organizing a lot of people. Um, so we're in that phase and doing a lot of work around criminal justice and around the local economy. Um, something we're working on right now is the local assessments, that there are some big problems with the provisional property tax assessments that uh, were just released, um, they the the some of which are problems of affordability and and you know the market saying that the prices are high, but it's not just that. There are some uh, just straight up errors and some illegalities uh, and some things that are legal but that will offend common sense and basic morality. Um, the Hyatt Hotel and, uh, uh, you know, the Benson Family's Champion Center uh, is worth Next to the $225 million, and it's paying zero in property taxes. 
that's costing oh. us about $8 million a year, and there's no reason for it. And Lou, um, it was, Lou to answer what he's saying, um, at the same time, because the property values in New Orleans have gone up a lot, because we've, we've had this infusion, you know, the usual kind of gentrification thing that's happening in so many cities. So we've had this infusion of people. And um, so the property values have been going up. And I can tell you, for example, my own home, um, uh, we were told that our new assessment was going to basically result in our taxes going up 20%. Now, that's going to be a hard hit for us. But Ooh. for some people, that would literally push them out of the city all together sure, and so sure. it's really it's really a, a terrible right. situation That's, so my, my so home I wonder, uh, Roderick, doubled doubled in value in one year um and again you know we'll figure this out but there are people who are going to be losing their homes um and on the one hand for ordinary people with 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 you know 1400 1200 square foot homes um, they're saying, well, the market, the market, the market dictates. And at the same time, you've got a giant corporation that's got $225 million that's exempt for no good reason. Then you have others that are not exempt. This came out, and it was kind of in a quiet article, but really needs to be a much bigger deal. Folgers Coffee is the largest recipient of these industrial tax exemptions, uh, and they have stopped getting them. Um, Folgers has about $200 million in property. Only $23 million of that is on the rolls. Uh, so there's for sure $40 million that flat has not been exempt for three years, but they've not been paying taxes on it. That's illegal. And there's a current legal obligation, a legal requirement for the assessor to charge those taxes and charge back taxes. And we think that's the tip of the iceberg because uh, we found lots of other places where we're not talking about public policy. We're talking about uh, – legally taxable property that is being treated for no good reason as though it's exempt. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, in the next week or so, uh, we'll be releasing a, a, a study on that to kind of show, hey, uh, here's some stuff that really needs to be fixed uh, and and the potential to use some of the revenue from fixing these mistakes to help address the uh, potential crisis of people losing their homes. So, so Lou, you can see that the passion that um, probably drove you to take your organization into political work um, is present and alive here in Louisiana. Broad, I need you to talk uh, to me next week. I, I need you to come back on the show next um, <laughs> Wednesday, and, and let's let's plumb this further because I, I have some other things about this I want to talk about. And uh, we're can actually have, out of time. A point? When you, as people moved into this, has there been – discomfort uh, and even opposition by some who say this is not the role of charities, nonprofits, you shouldn't be doing Absolutely. This. Absolutely. And I think um, a, 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 a real attuned understanding of the mission of the organizations is an important first step because it turns out the mission of most of our churches and synagogues and mosques and nonprofits is not only do charity work and keep your damn mouth shut. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it, is, it is, if you really look at it, transform the world, act for justice, uh, be, we're, it, it's not to be partisan, and we're not. And, and part of that is there are times where the Democrats have done at least as bad as the Republicans have. Um, uh, but it is to be engaged politically with a small P uh, uh, and a broad mission. Um, so 
there is a lot of resistance to that, and I think that's some of the uh, kind of formation and, and cultural work that needs to happen for organizations to start to retake their proper role. So the music in that background, you, you guys, what, uh, excuse me, with, with, i got to stop you. <laughs> I'm going to get kicked think, out of the studio. I think we got to go, Lou. Thank you so much, Gene. Listen, I'm going to exchange uh, contact information for you guys online because I, okay. I think there might be a benefit for you to continue to communicate. And um, I'm sorry that we didn't get on a roll until the last part of the show. I, I apologize. But um, uh, we're going to have some more conversation on this. You're and, doing and, your job. That's great. Broderick, please, please call me uh, to come on next week. And Lou, I miss you. Come down and visit us in New Orleans. Once every 50 years, whether or not we need to. Oh, come on now. We don't have all that many years, so you better come sooner. (laughs) This is Gene Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And I'm loving uh, being on the phone with my good buddies who are working so hard on uh, on all of our behalfs. And I'll talk with you next week on Crosstown Conversations on WBOK.